it was a bit scary, but then equity came in and uh, and gave me a new identity and it gave me a new purpose. And what I realized as well is also why I decided to dance the plank. I need to do something I'm passionate about it. purpose. Every time I was doing something new, I could take the skills that I learned from the previous job and and not feel so lost. Sure. You kind of learn how to manage people with people and, and, and getting developing the credibility with them as well. So yeah. that they can trust you. So it is a question of trust as well. And I think my background as an artist, even though it was in the circus, they uh, gave me that credibility of, of knowing what they were going through as well. Mm. And welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast. Today we're talking with Richard Dijonet. With over 35 years of experience and success in the performing arts industry, working as a creator and creative manager, Richard has been involved in creating international live shows, both in permanent and touring venues, corporate and touristic events, FECs and theme parks. He's well versed in leading different styles of creative processes and successfully guiding teams to overcome complex challenges. Born and raised in Montreal, Richard's long, decade-long dance career with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet gave him the chance to travel the world and work with some of the best choreographers in the industry, honing his artistic skills. After 18 years working with Cirque du Soleil as Head of Auditions, Senior Artistic Director and Senior Creative Director, and a year in Dubai working on Franco Dragon's La Pearl, he joined the live entertainment leader that is Cirque Eloise as its Vice President of Creation. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I know a lot about your work now, but let's go back to the beginning. So you started as a ballet mm. dancer. So what was the the path that led you to dance? It's a really a very atypical path for me. Uh, my family was not very artistic. My father was an engineer. My mom was a school teacher. Uh, my brother is a social worker and my sister works in insurance. So really I was kind of the oddball here in the family. Uh, but the one thing, though, is that there was always music in my house. Always, always listening to something, whether it was jazz, classical, uh, and some of the crooners at the time. My love for music developed at that point, and I, I kind of knew in the back of my head that I wanted to do something with music because it moved me so much that I couldn't not be around music. However, I was a lousy uh, musician. <laughs> I tried accordion, I tried guitar, I tried a whole bunch of things and it, it didn't work. I didn't have the head for it. And then at one point later after my teens, because I played a lot of sports during my teenage years and I decided to take a dance class on a dare from a friend of mine and I loved it. And this is where I realized that my connection with music could be dance. But at that point it was just as a hobby. And I moved to Winnipeg for uh, uh, to go to university, and at that point, I uh, I continued to take dance class as a hobby, just to be able to meet people, hone my skills in English because I didn't speak a lot of English back then, and I really loved it. And my teacher said, "Well, we need guys for the professional school, and why don't you apply?" And I did, and I left university and decided to dance. So at that point, I was twenty years old. And then I finished the school, I graduated. Uh, my third year in the school, I started working with a company on full-length ballets. 
they offered me a job and uh, and then I stayed there for I think I stayed in Winnipeg for 12 years so it was quite the experience I traveled all over the world with them but uh, yeah it's a bit of an unusual path for me but loved it really 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 had I discovered a passion uh, that I didn't know I had and what was the 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 things that you take away from your time as being a dancer like what did you learn about the industry and about arts and performance well for me one of the things is, is i love to observe um and I'm a, i have a, a bit of an introverted tendency sometimes and in the crowd especially i i tend to fall back a little bit and observe the, the dynamics and um, i looked a lot on the dynamic of how ballet companies function and I learned a lot. I remember my second, my first year in the, as a quarter ballet because I started as an apprentice. When I was on the quarter ballet, they asked, they elected me to be the, the dancer's rep because we were an equity company back then. Well, still today, but we're an equity company. They needed uh, a rep and nobody wanted to do it. So it's like, Let, let's give it to the new guy. So I took it on and I really enjoyed it. So I spent about eight years. Uh, working as their rep going into to toronto to to the national council eventually being elected secretary of the union and this is why i learned the business side of it, the contract negotiations but also the dynamic of of that social or political environment that happens in a creative company and it was really eye-opening in that sense and taught me a lot about how to approach people mediation um what to ask, when, when to push, when to fall back, why do company ask for certain things, when do they go too much and they take advantage of, of the situation, but when do they really need it? Like to be able to, to look through that was really interesting for me. I, I kind of developed at that point another passion, which was not this, a bit of an advocate, but really this, this uh, relationship that happens in arts between the the, the, um, the engager and the artist and uh, continue to learn a lot about this. So that was one of the things that was really interesting that really helped me after that in my career. The other thing too was this relationship that you develop with the audience when you're on stage. And what does that mean? Because at first, the first time you go on stage as a performer, you kind of go a bit like a deer in headlights and. But at some point you kind of relax a little bit and you start noticing that there's people there watching you, you know, and enjoying it, expecting certain things. And I, uh, I was fascinated by that relationship and, and you, you, you almost become um, addicted to it. It's, it's something that, that every show that you go on, even though you have a different audience, you sort of nurture, you, you can make the choice to nurture that relationship by giving them as much as you, you can and, and realizing that then when you do that, they give back. And, and that back and forth creates this experience for me was, was literally addictive. I loved it. I loved being on stage. Uh, and really, the, and the other thing too, short of, this, the art world and the intention of the choreographers and the, the, the relationship with the music that we have as dancers. It was also the, the idea that 
as as an artist, it is really a calling. Um, there's so many times people ask me, so what are you going to do when you grow up? You know, that, that cliche thing where arts is not necessarily considered a real profession. But then you start digging into the impact of arts on, on society, on the economy, on the general well-being of, of people that come to watch it, but also that do it. And then you start realizing how important arts is in, in our society, how essential it is. And that was really eye-opening for me too. It's such a fundamental um, facet of what I loved when you said about your relationship with the audience. It's something that it's one of the things that can't really be replaced through movies or through other mediums, right? And so one of the things that I think as we evolve in also this digital era, the uh, advantage of live performance is that relationship between the audience and the people and it's um yeah no it's super super important and so in your career what was the transition from performer into the next thing that was beyond a performer because a lot of performers an exit from the stage is a is a is a large step in their life right and it can be an emotional one depending on what is next what was that like for you what was interesting with me is i, I was kind of as I, I i nourished my interest and i was always being curious like i said i observe and, and, and learn. I, I didn't realize that i kept paving the way for the next step so working with uh, as the dancer representative, when I was dancing with the company, made me aware of the associations of Canadian Actors' Equity, started getting involved, learning the different um, uh, collective agreements, and, and so on. So when I decided to retire from dance, there was this opportunity to go to Toronto to work for Canadian Actors' Equity as a business representative. And I took it. And it, it became, because the, the, the one thing that I was very afraid of when I finished dancing, and I think a lot of the, the, the dancers, acrobats that are in the circus also feel this, is the loss of identity. You know? Because it's more than just a job, like I said. It, it's a calling and, and, and it encompasses all your life. Because if you're smart, and you don't want to get injured, then you take care of your bodies, which means that your lifestyle has to be adapted to your to, to this profession. So when you finish dancing, and you don't have to do that anymore, and, and you cannot say, there's nothing worse than say, well, I'm an ex-dancer, you know? So <laughs> I going from dance to, I didn't know when, because at first I was going to university, I really, I had a struggle with that. Okay, I'm a student, or I don't know yet, or you know, I was 32 years old, and it was a bit scary. But then equity came in, and uh, it gave me a new identity, and it gave me a new purpose. And what I realized as well, and it's also why I decided to dance at length. I need to do something I'm passionate about that gives me purpose. So equity gave me that, and all the years that I had volunteered for equity because you don't get paid when you're a dancer's rep well you taught me what i needed to become a business representative which i uh, i did for about five years it was easier than i expected in a way 
You had a and you then, had a good landing on that then. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, but only exactly. because you'd built up the equity um, while you were a performer, right? I think that's a really important point that there was something in the works. You weren't just performing, and and there was groundwork being laid. Not exactly, and probably the biggest thing that performers, especially uh, performers that are in in art forms that are very physical, like dance, like circus. Uh, it's so important to to build that that equity, to build these secondary skills or, or, or knowledges that that will help you later on figure out uh, what what you want to do, what you're good at, uh, and uh, save you a little bit of time. Because there's so many people that you know, it's it's cool to live in the moment, but at the same time, because it's so physical, if there's a uh, a bad luck that happens, you have an injury and you have to cut your career, it's not when you want to, but when this injury tells you to, a lot of time you're, you're caught by surprise and you don't know what to do and, and there, there's a real moment there of panic, right, that can happen. I've seen it so many times with young performers that, you know, I'm going to perform until I'm 40 and then I'll do this and I'll do that and then they're 28 and all of a sudden they don't have a choice, they have to stop. And they're not prepared. Not not only are they not prepared financially, which is one of the things that my father taught me. Always put a little bit aside in case of emergency. But it's mentally and, and emotionally. You have to be prepared to leave that behind, especially when you don't want. And that's tough. Yeah, I have experienced in my career watching people go through that, and I have a lot of empathy when they haven't been prepared because it's um, it's quite a, a big. Uh, event in their life to to have to walk away from a performance career and um yeah i always say keep planning for plan b even if you get to 40 and you're a performer you should still have a plan b right always so did you go from equity sorry go ahead no no go ahead did you go from equity then to Cirque du Soleil what was that transition and what was yeah. your foray into the circus arena really it was um another a beautiful accident. Uh, there's a friend of mine who was in Montreal. She was an anglophone, and she saw this position at Cirque du Soleil. It was a contract negotiator. She gave me a call and said, oh, "What do you think? You work at Equity, and what do you think my chances are? I want to apply for it." And I we talked for a little bit, and I said, "Well, how's your French?" Because you're in Quebec and you're probably going to need to be bilingual. And so I'm not very good right now, especially with, uh, speaking. Uh, it's so so anyway. So she said, "Well, she said, well, why don't you apply? Because you're bilingual." And so I, why not? So I applied. I went to Montreal for an interview, and they gave me the job. So again, because of my background in contract negotiation and collective agreement and so on with equity, they. Um, it, it was perfect for the position they were looking for. They were building the department, which was at that time part of the casting department at Sunnyside. Now it's part of human resource, so the profile has changed. Uh, I probably, if I would have applied today, uh, I'm not sure if I would have gotten it because now they're they hiring lawyers to do this this part. Right. At the time, it wasn't. So we were working with the, the, the legal department at Sunnyside. So it was a, a beautiful accident. And from there, so I, I applied, they, they gave me the job. I moved, the, me and my wife moved from Toronto to Montreal. 
decided to to make that big move and um, contract negotiation for about four years. Then there was an opening on tour as um, artistic director, or at that point they called it artistic coordinator, uh, and they changed uh, after to artistic director, but it was the same position on South and Banco. Then uh, Corteo, so I, I left on tour for about three years. Yeah, I stayed about 18 years with Cirque Soleil. It was amazing school because the great thing with Cirque Soleil is because it's not, it's such a particular culture, like circus is a particular culture in itself. Cirque Soleil and its environment, and when we talk about the social and political ecosystem within you know, creative company, each company had their own little village or bubble, right? And Cirque had its, its own, and you can't really learn that in school. You can't get a BA in Cirque Soleil or what they do, but they were very much willing to teach you. And, and I had this amazing mentor back then, her name was Muriel Cantay, and she was an amazing woman that gave me uh, this opportunity to, uh, to risk doing something that I, I wasn't quite sure if I knew, but it's almost like you saw that I could do it, that I had the skill to do it. I had definitely the passion to do it. I made a lot of mistakes, but she kept pushing me and giving me those opportunities. So I went on tour, then I came back as a senior artistic director. Then uh, they had this event department and became creative director for the event department. So we were doing, you know, premiere parties and weddings and little things like this. Eventually we started doing shows for, for cities like Quebec City or Trois-Rivières or Andorra. To, and, and, and then, it, it, you know, it, it grew from there. So I learned every time I was doing something new, I could take the skills that I learned from the previous job and and not feel so lost you know, in, in the new position. And it, it kept going like this. So that's why, for me, it's really interesting looking back in my career, but I sort of, without knowing it, sort of kept paving the way for what could be coming, what was coming after. Was there any advocacy you had to do from being the contract guy to into the creative branch of Cirque? Because that seems like a little bit of a leap. I mean, I know you had the background of ballet, but it's generally if you're doing the contracts, they were like, you're the next creative director. How did that jump make happen? Well, there was a, a, a between going on tour to contract, I did uh, I took care of the audition as well. Took care of the what, sorry? The audition. Oh, okay. Those head of editions, but I think the background, my background in, in, in dance and uh, the little bit of choreography that I did in the past, but sort of allowed me to convince them that I could do it. However, artistic director on tour is much more a managerial position than it is a creative position. You don't create anything, you're there to maintain the show that's been created. And parameters that you have are very clear, you know, they have to redo the show. Yes, sometimes you have to integrate, you need to inspire the artists uh, because they're doing the same thing day in and day out. You also sometimes have to tweak your notes, but I, that I could do. And uh, I think also the fact that my eight years uh, in the, um, um, the council of equity, plus the five, four, five years that I did in Toronto as a business rep, allowed me to also develop 
uh, skills on how to manage artists. Big group of artists, but something that you stand in front of a huge group of angry artists that uh, were pissed off at the union because uh, they, they they didn't get exactly what they wanted, and you need you need to navigate into that. It's not much different than an artistic director going to Tapiro talking to a bunch of artists that are not necessarily happy because the kitchen food was sucked that week, right? <laughs> So you try to learn how to manage big group of people and 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 getting developing the credibility with them as well, so yeah. that they can trust you. See, it is a question of trust as well. And I think my background as an artist, even though it wasn't in circus, they uh, gave me that credibility of of knowing what they were going through as well. Mm. And now a note from our sponsor. The Theatre Out Live podcast is proud to be sponsored by ClearCom. ClearCom is the leader in voice communications since 1968 for theatre and the performing arts. When the show must go on, ClearCom is there to keep the team on cue. You can find them at clearcom.com. Go check them out. It's interesting that you say that, I think because probably there would be a perception outside the, the circus world that we might know that, an artistic director is quite artistic, but you say that there's a lot of managerial aspects of that role, right? If you could put a percentage to management versus artistic notes in the role of an artistic director in that kind of construct, would it be what, 75% management, 25% artistic? Like what would you, because you want to be realistic, right? Like about what that role is when you go into it, because I think a lot of people may think it is heavily artistic, but it is. I've seen it as a managerial role, very much so. Uh, Obviously it changes from week to week, but in general it's, uh, you have to give notes to the artists and they always want notes. But it, when it, and, and that's an artistic aspect you work with too. But I would say 70, 30, depending, some weeks uh, a little bit less. So, you know, some, some weeks you, you spend more time, those are good weeks, spend more time uh, working on artistic aspect. Other weeks can go up to 80, 20, and sometimes 100% just management because you have no time to do anything. So it depends on the week. Yeah. You try as much as possible to spend time on artistic things, but there's a difference in doing an artistic, the artistic component to to an artistic director versus a creative component. Because the creative component, where you create something new, is very is rare. Because as as I said, your role is to maintain the vision of somebody else. It's not about your vision. It's not about what you think is best. Uh, if there's an act and the creators. Uh, said, well, this is the act that I want, this is the level that I want for this kind of, of, of profile. And you think, well, that's not right, and it is something else better, well, tough. Create your own show, and then you can do whatever, whatever you want. Uh, so, And that needs to be accepted by an artistic director, because there's a real respect that you need to give creators uh, that spend so much time putting their vision. It doesn't mean that you, you, you don't tweak some things. I was working on a certain show and I was able to talk to the original uh, director of the show to suggest certain things or to my senior artistic director to say, well, what about this? And they would say, well, try it and show me. And then they would say if it's good or not, if keep it or not. But in general, you let to maintain something. So 
the artistic aspect can vary and sometimes you can you're lucky you can do some workshops with them we, uh, i remember we used to go to a new city and i would connect with some entities artistic entities whether it's a, a flamenco company a dance company a theater companies and invite them and have exchange with our artists so this artistic development component was important and i love doing that but the creation aspect of it was very it was much smaller so you now work for Cirque Alois and not all of our listeners are, live in the circus world. So can you explain to our audience what Cirque Alois is um, and, and what your role so is Cirque now? Cirque Alois celebrates this here 30 years of existence. It's a, it's a circus company, uh, what we call Contemporary Circus, that started in uh, Montreal. It's uh, some, some people, some friends from the Magdalena Islands and got together. We were students at the National Circus School here in Montreal, three years ago. They, uh, they decided at one point to do a show together. They presented it at the National Circus School, which was at uh, the Dal Dalhousie station, train station, which is where we are right now in, in, in the old Montreal. And they, uh, they did a show, it was successful, they decided to get together and uh, not unsimilar to Seven Fingers of Fabric or those smaller companies that where you have a bunch of friends that decide that they love working with each other, so why not create a company? So Jeanne Pinchot and some of his other friends from the Magdalena Islands decide to create Cirque And their signature and what was made them sort of different in a way from companies like Cirque Soleil is that their, their mandate and, and the venue that they wanted to do circus in was the existing theater. So singing theaters that existed all over the place and to bring circus to smaller places, but that are all over the place, uh, all over the world. So really utilize the Christian theater to create uh, their shows as opposed to big tops or, or, or arenas. Uh, like Ringling Brothers or Cirque Soleil doing. So uh, it created it created a lot of very poetic uh, poetic shows. Shows like Rain, uh, Nibia, the Fizipaska Passage to that it was uh, still beautiful shows that it was produced and created. Uh, shows like ID, Circopolis, um, always something that uh, it's entertainment with meaning, in a way, or art with meaning. So, General likes to have a bit of a message, and really does. So, yeah, 30 years this year, so we're pretty proud of it. My role is, uh, as vice president creation is really to uh, support Jeanneau and his vision, go in and, and help. Uh, bring teams together, create new type uh, of shows, uh, experiences that takes a, a was sort of DNA and, um, and, and, and integrate it in experiences like immersive experience or within, like during the pandemic, I want to start doing movies, we're just representing a podcast. So we're trying to diversify a little bit to see where the creative 
skills that we own over the 30 years, where can we also put it outside the normal show? We're still doing normal shows. We are actually going on tour for the first time after the pandemic uh, this summer with a new show. And uh, a new show that has, that's going to start at the Magdalene Islands, but then after that's going to tour into Quebec and then Europe. So we're pretty proud of that. And it has the sort of storytelling of legends of the islands with music, the traditional from the islands with a group of musicians that are from there. So it's very dear to Jango's heart, this show, because it's where he's from. And um, being able to share that with outside the islands for him is quite special. So oh, that's amazing. We are. Yeah. I should. I, I want to. I want to see that. I want to ask you. Oh, do you think that just does, uh, does, just before? Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but a little fun fact is, for those of you, uh, one of the founders of of, of Cirque was is also Daniel Sia, who invented the Lucia. So that was one of uh, for people. People know Lucia now, but uh, yeah. not everybody knows that it it, uh, it was one of the founders of Cirque was that created. Well, there you go. That's super interesting. I didn't know that. Um, I wanted to ask, like, is is that desire to diversify or that need to diversify, do you think that that stemmed from the pandemic or do you think that's the, just the evolution of arts generally in, you know, because a lot of companies are coming out of the pandemic and looking to approach their work differently. And, and where do, what do you think that is for LORs? Is it from the pandemic or is it technology? Is it, what is it? Well, I think pandemic was the trigger and, the sense that everybody knew that we, you know, that what we did depends on, on the presence of an audience, shows. But everybody kind of had their head in the sand about something like that happening, where it was so drastic, where all of a sudden you weren't able to do any other thing. If all your operation stopped. Um, and we were caught like everybody else. I mean, all of our eggs were on stage, with uh, sort of depending on the presence of an audience buying tickets to survive. Mm-hmm. Anyway. The good thing is, I mean, I mean, it was a bit of a forced sabbatical. And when you take a sabbatical, usually you take a sabbatical either because you're completely exhausted and you sit on your couch and you catch up on Netflix, or you you go on sabbatical to 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 explore to develop your skills to see where you could have another passion and, and you know just to get yourself out of what you normally do. Ours was forced, but we 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 let go of Netflix and we decided to explore. And there's so many things that came up. Some didn't work. We're like, okay, well that's not what it was. But others worked out really well and. Uh, it, we did an immersive experience expo with um, uh, Jacques Cousteau at the Magdalena Islands. Now you see him, he's a diver, he's got amazing images of the Arctic. And Jano knew him, so they offered him, or so proposed to him to take his images and his video to do it and create an immersive experience so that people can see these images. And it was incredibly successful. So much so that we were creating a second one now with a planetarium in Montreal here about uh, Voyage to Mars and Women Scientists. They came to get us because they've seen what we did in Mayo, but to, to, to bring this theatrality, theatricality and, and the, the, the storytelling 
that he was is, is good at that he loves to give to science. So, the, yeah, I think the pandemic made us realize how fragile we were uh, and that we had to take our head out of the sand. What we were good at into other aspects of, of all right, so we always finish our um, podcast with two questions. So these are these are these. So I'm going to give them to you now. So, what's your most favorite thing about your job or the industry? Continuing to create this uh, and develop and better this moment where artists meet audience, and that's always been for me what. Um, kept me, I can say brought me to the performing arts because I didn't know that. But when I, like I said, when I discovered it, I fell in love with it. And since then, that's it, been a passion of mine to continue to see how we can better this moment, this, this relationship that we, we keep developing over the years. It's marriage, right? Mm, absolutely. And to keep audiences so, coming to that connection, yeah. right? Because that's really yeah, because important. Because one of the it's super important, and one of the things that we don't realize is a lot of times we say, "Well, we were there for the show." But the experience is much better. It, it encompasses a lot more people, and the experiences, that moment, yes, that we meet the audience is important. But then there's a pre, like before the audience gets their feet into the a theater, there is uh, the experience starts. How do they buy their tickets? What do they see on, on on social media and things like this? And it continues after they leave the audience. If you want to keep that relationship alive, you need to take care of the pre and the post moment of, of meeting. Mm. Oh, I totally 100% agree. I think there's a lot more capitalization on that narrative building up to a show that can be done with live entertainment than there is right now. And I think... That's what I would love to explore in the future is how to document and share that journey to the live thing because I think that's a, you know, you you and I have probably been through creation so you know how interesting that that process is and to expose an audience to that gives them reason to go and see the end result, right? So I'm fascinated to see how we could make use of that through either social media or documentaries or any of those things. I keep feeling like, there's a big opportunity that can be missed if you're not sharing that journey, you know. Completely. Yeah. Now the other question we have is, if you could change one thing about your job or the industry, what would you what would you change? One of the things. Oh, that's, a, that's a good question. <laughs> um, one of, uh, I think it's a perception that I would like to change, uh, and, and a perception from from the pop, the people that come into this industry in order to make a profit. Um, and I'll tell you, I'm not trying to make it succinct, but one of the things that, uh, you know, I was talking to you about this social and political ecosystem that happens into creative industry and the bigger the, the, the company becomes, the more intricate and, and political it becomes. And I think you've lived that as well. I call that creativocracy. You know, it's this, this kind of, of system. And within that, I called it that because I needed to put a name on all the observation that I've done over almost 40 years now that I've been in the business. 
And one of the things that I noticed is when we talk about this, you know, talking about this experience, this moment, for me, the, 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 the focus, if you want to be successful, has to be on the quality of that experience. All the people that surrounds the uh, that, that supports the artist that supports the the, the audience, uh, the, the the pre you know getting in the theater getting the post. If you focus on that and and create uh, the best experience possible, obviously one of the beautiful consequences of that is going to make money. The perception is when people come in to uh, and, and you, you you move from a single owner of a company, for example that has this passionate creative company to be able to create some things and, and discover the beautiful uh, idea that they can make a living out of their art. When somebody takes over and then there's uh, uh, multiple owners with shareholders and things like this, the, the perception is that the focus has to be on making money, being, uh, making the company profitable. The problem with that is when your focus gets on that, everything else becomes secondary. Everything else becomes a tool that you can play with to help that ultimate goal. And the problem is that then you start justifying why the quality of that experience is not as important as it should be. That you start cutting on that, on elements of that experience. And the problem is also is that it takes times if you if you if you start um, uh, chipping away at that experience small in small increments it takes a while for the audience to realize that it's not as good as it used to be or that they're not having as much fun as it used to be or it's something that they've seen in the past and a lot of times when that realization happens it's too late the company has suffered and it's they have to rebuild everything specifically the, the, the trust with their audience. So if I had to change something is this perception that that in order to survive they have to focus on profitability. That's for me is the case of death for any company. If they focus on the right thing, on the important thing, on the meaningful things, that, and, and put their energy there, yeah, there's risk for sure, but they have to have an element of risk maybe. If they focus on that, then, like I said, beautiful consequences to make money out of it because people want to see you. So uh, I, I love that answer, Richard. I, I totally resonate with that um, uh, very viscerally. So I really appreciate that answer. It's one of the best ones I think we've had on our podcast thus far. So I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you so thank much you. for joining us i really appreciate it it's nice to see you again i know we're, we we've already met and spent some time together but now we've done it formally on the podcast so i really uh appreciate hearing about your experience and now i know more about your ballet background so <laughs> well thank you so much for having me it's uh it was a real pleasure and and uh to, to speak with you and yes super nice to see you again and hopefully the next time we won't be so far away where are you right now are you in dubai i'm or in hong kong you're, yeah you're in hong kong. <laughs> yeah well hopefully it's nice over there and the weather is good but uh thank you again it was uh, really appreciated thank you richard